you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I'm always amazed by individuals who accomplish great things. I think you listeners know that that's oftentimes who we bring on to these shows. They're individuals who climb the ladder, they win the race, they go to the very tippity top of the mountaintops, they do mighty things in their lives, and that's awesome. But I am far more amazed and even more impressed by individuals who strive to accomplish great things with and for others. Today, we have that type of guest on our show. Her life story is a testament to the power of dedication, of compassion, of endurance, of service, of human connection. As an accomplished triathlete, Carolyn Gaynor dedicates her talents to guiding athletes who are blind or visually impaired. So the races she runs, in other words, are not for her, they are for others. Acting as their eyes during a race, Carolyn spends upwards of, you ready for it, mom? 16 hours racing and swimming and running and biking. She's tethered, literally tethered to a blind or visually impaired athlete, keeping them safe while they're swimming keeping them safe while they're cycling, keeping them moving forward in the right direction while they're running. And she isn't even credited with the result of completing the competition. Today, Carolyn shares her journey in completing 10 Ironman triathlons as a guide. And yet her story doesn't end there. Hear how Carolyn shares how serving as an endurance athlete guides her in her career professionally and raising her daughter and caring for her mother with Parkinson's disease and how to meet others where they are in their life to love them as they are and to remind them that their best is yet to come. My friends, this is the kind of guest that you are going to love. You're going to know by the end of the conversation why I view her as someone to look up to and also as a friend. Let this conversation serve as a reminder that in life, sometimes you are the guide to others and sometimes it is someone else who has taken you by the hand guiding you forward. Be open to both. Yet what we know to be true is that we cannot go through this life by ourselves. So my friends, without further ado, grab your running shoes. You'll need them. As I bring on my friend and now yours, her name is Carolyn Gaynor. Carolyn, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm already sensing that I'm having coffee right now with a friend. 
but I want to make sure that the others who are pulling up their chairs next to our table have a bit of a sense of who you are. If they were to join us at this little coffee shop where you and I are gathered right now, the Live Inspired podcast, and say, Carolyn Gaynor, tell me what you do professionally. I would say that I work for a large asset manager, and my job is to support financial advisors. That I believe in the power of financial advice. I think that having a financial advisor is as important as having a doctor. And that's what I do is, is help advisors. Wow. Through our coaching program we have around here at Live Inspired, we recognize that the pie of life includes professionals. So that's a, pa- a yeah. part of who you are. When yep. you're not doing that worthy work, what else keeps you busy? Well, I'm a mom of a four-year-old and I'm a caregiver for my mother who has Parkinson's dementia. And what I've been doing for the last over 15 years is I'm a guide for blinded, visually impaired athletes, mainly in triathlons. Um, and I love guiding Ironman triathlons. That sounds like full-time work. So we're going to be talking about this full-time work and this abundant life during this podcast with you right now. But rather than talking about the most recent finish line, or uh, did you spill some Cheerios with that four-year-old this morning? Or how is your mother doing right now? We'll come back to all of those. I want to go yep. back in time a little bit to you, your upbringing, your family of origin. Where'd you grow up and, and uh, who were some of the bigger influences back then? I grew up until I was seven, I was in Philadelphia, and then my family moved to Evanston, Illinois, so right outside Chicago, where Northwestern is, and right when we moved, when I was seven, my parents separated, um, and I have an older brother and a younger sister, and we were raised mostly by my mom, you know, she was the full-time parent. Uh, my dad was still around, of course, but he didn't live with us. My mom was pretty incredible. She actually went back to school and became a therapist, and so she was, I remember in middle school, you know, coming down, and she pulled an all-nighter to write papers. And, you know, my dad also had a really strong work ethic. He was actually a world champion winning rower. And so in 74, he won the men's lightweight eight. So I would say that one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was growing up is hard work matters. Uh, And not that they never really had to push that on me. Like, I think I absorbed it as I was growing up. And so I always, I always took pride in my, my work ethic. When you were a little kid watching your mother go back to school and the work that she ultimately chose, and then your father who's working hard and also rowing hard, you have these examples of people striving forward. Mm-hmm. What did you imagine yourself doing in the future? I mean, when I was little, I wanted to do, I wanted to have 10 different jobs. I wanted to be a veterinarian and a doctor and an actor, I think, and an artist. Uh, <laughs> But but truthfully, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I when I grew up. I was almost pre-med in college, and then I ended up becoming a history major. I had no clear plan. I never found what I wanted to do to be really inspiring until my early 30s. So to anyone wow. who is concerned in their 20s that they're not on the right path, uh, don't worry. You have plenty of time. <laughs> uh, we, we share that truth of, of meandering and sputtering our way through yeah. our 20s, learning a little bit, and then hopefully applying them in our 30s and beyond. What kind of work yeah. were you doing after school? You, you graduate with this history degree, then what? I lucked into a job at, at BlackRock right out of school and was, you know, working on the pensions team. But, but honestly, I don't think I really understood. So I talk about work ethic, but that didn't translate to the workforce for me. So in high school... I learned tons about work ethic. I was, I took tons of AP classes. I was captain of two sports. Uh, and I was also never even very good at the sports that I did, but I, I put in work. 
I just fumbled my way through my 20s. Sometimes when you meet people who are super successful, you, you feel almost like you're living in their shadow. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, really cool and beautiful. Yeah. And it connects me and our listeners to you to recognize you weren't always like you stumbled your way forward. Well, I think that I was an underperformer. And then frankly, I was, uh, I struggled with my mental health in my early 20s and had severe depression and had trouble getting to work on time. And I got the work done generally, but I just, I wasn't a high performer. And I think I didn't understand that almost every job you have right out of school, there are going to be parts that are way beneath your abilities. That's part of it. And that's fine. Um, And I've learned so much humility through that. I'm not even embarrassed to say it now because I just didn't get it when I was in my early twenties. And that's something I certainly hope my daughter learns is like, there's, there's nothing that's beneath you. There's nothing that you shouldn't be willing to do in any job. And I sure know that now. And, and I learned that consistently throughout my twenties. But I just didn't internalize that in my first job out of school. When did things begin to change? When when did this girl who can't really get out of bed and hear her brother knocking begin making this radical pivot to running triathlons? Like that's, that's a, that's a leap. Well, that was the one thing that actually got me through everything. Sports have always been the constant. So I, I ran cross country and, and ended up playing water polo in high school. And I did my first triathlon when I was going into my senior year of high school. I wrote my college entrance essay on what it was like to train for. And I wrote my own training plan. I, you know, every single thing, you know, I, I did myself. So I got into the school I wanted. Um, and so I was always, every summer uh, I was competing at, in triathlons and I was, you know, doing bike racing. And so even when I wasn't working, that was the thing that kept me going. And, and truthfully, when I was failing over and over again, professionally, if I had not had something going, okay, mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done. Um, so to have a piece of my identity that wasn't tied to my professional life was paramount. And I really believe that to this day, you have to have something that's not you know, you, maybe your identity is your parent Great, That's awesome. That can't be the only thing. Maybe you love your job and you're great at it. Can't be the only thing you've got to have something outside of work and home that motivates you. And that makes you feel like who you are. So many of our listeners email into us and they share that they are struggling. They're struggling at work. They're struggling in relationship as yeah. a parent, as the inability to become a parent uh, and yeah. in their singleness with an addiction, like we are all, many of us dealing with profound struggles. So for those of us who have not yet identified really who we are and whose we are and what matters most to us right now, and we're just meandering through life, how do we begin to get clarity on taking the next right step forward? Oh, that's so tough. I think it's really taking an inventory of the things that you value. Like what kind of person do you want to be? And then, and I don't mean what sorts of things do you want to achieve? Like, who do you want to be? What do you want people to think of you as? Uh, What sorts of people do you value? And then start by taking tiny, tiny baby steps towards whatever that is. And again, it can't be a massive goal. It has to be, I mean, if you're struggling to get out of bed, it's as little as going to bed on time. Like, don't worry about when you wake up, it's getting in bed and trying to go to sleep. Um, And then, you know, when you've mastered some of the basics, then it's figuring out something that'll bring you joy. And I think community is a big part of it. And, you know, that's a lot of what triathlon and, and guiding specifically have brought to me is find a group of people where there's no judgment, where they're not going to put pressure on you or guilt you if you don't achieve your goals. Cause I don't believe in that. It's being really kind to yourself and finding a safe place where people share your values and you can show up when you're able to, and they can help move you gradually towards whatever goal you're trying to achieve. 
you are moving toward your goals occasionally of, of leaving the house and going for a jog or maybe a swim, when did it become even more than exercise? When did it become part of your DNA and who you were and what you wanted to achieve? I mean, guiding was definitely a turning point for me. You know, sports were incredibly important to me in high school. Uh, you know, becoming captain of two, two sports was something I never thought I would achieve. You know, making the varsity in cross country, never thought I would do that. Uh, so I always valued sports, but it was always independent. So I was, I was a rower in college. And, um, but then I ended up actually quitting rowing when I was a junior. And I never thought I would. I was very worried. I was like, oh, no, I'm a quitter. But I quit for very specific reasons. I felt like my whole identity was rowing. And that was what made me worthwhile. And I had some disagreements with the coach around eating disorders and her ignoring that and some of the other athletes. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I quit and immediately signed up for an Ironman, which is, um, for anyone who doesn't know, an Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, a 26.2 mile run. And I signed up because I didn't want to be one of those people that quit a sports team because it was too hard. I was like, I want everyone to know I'm not quitting because it's too hard for me. I'm quitting for personal reasons, but I'm going to go do something incredibly hard on my own now. And so I signed up my, so I was junior year when I quit and then senior year and in the fall is when I did my first Ironman. Um, and I raised money for a charity that I was involved in. So it was always a slightly higher purpose. But when I pivoted to, to guiding, I guess it was three years after that, it was, I, I mean, you talk about a date in your life where things change. Uh, I don't remember the exact date, but it was July, 2008, when I guided my first triathlon, that was whole life shifts immediately in one day. So we have had some triathlons on the show and I love them and the amount of training that goes into it and conviction and determination to finish the, the swimming part, let alone everything else that goes into it is overwhelming. But if your story was only around that I don't think you and I would be talking right now in this regard. It's this role you have as a guide, even that word. I love the word guide. It's so attractive. It's so beautiful. It's so humble. And it's so needed right now, not only in triathlons, which is lovely, but in life. So for our listeners who really don't yet know what you're talking about, you're a guide. What does that mean? So I had to learn this that day in, in July in 2008. I, I, I had seen folks running in Central Park with blind athletes. I'd done a couple of runs. I knew that blind athletes were able to do all these races and they needed someone to race with them. Because again, you know, blind and visual impairment, there's a spectrum. You can talk about people that are completely blind and they've been since birth, people that lost their vision partway through life or people that have low vision and they're legally blind. So it's, all of these folks are you know, categorized in this way. And basically anyone who falls into that category needs a guide to run with them. Um, I always talk about skiing because sometimes there are more skiers and endurance athletes. You might, if you've ever gone skiing, you might've seen two people side by side on the slopes with like an orange vest, one says guide and one says blind. It's the same concept. Blind people are physically totally capable of doing these races, but they need someone to race with them. So in a triathlon, which is a swim followed by a bike and a run in whatever distance, uh, the first one I did was an Olympic distance. So that's nine tenths of a mile swim, a uh, 24.8 mile bike and a 6.2 mile run. And it was the New York city triathlon that we did. So you're tethered on the swim. You've got like a bungee cord at that, that race, we used a bungee around the waist. I now prefer to use a bungee around the thigh. And when you're swimming, the athlete takes, is supposed to take the lead. You're not pulling them. So they are, they are swimming their own race. And you are either right next to them or a little bit behind because you're not allowed to aid them. You can't pull them going forward. 
it's their race. When I swim without goggles in a pool that has too much chlorine and I can't open yeah. my eyes, yeah. I am lost. Yep. It's like every like three strokes, I, I, you know, dog paddle for a second, look up to see where the ledge is. And then I keep going. And then I look up a little bit and keep on going. And it yeah. is so awkward and easy to feel lost. And that's yeah. in the pool by myself in my backyard where there's no one else splashing around me. Yeah. This is open water swimming yeah. with a lot of athletes around you, a lot of chaos, a oh. lot of noise. Oh, yeah. Take us through like, what's that like for you? And what's it like for the athlete that you're guiding? Well, I can't, well, I, I can't speak for the athlete, but I can share some anecdotes for me. I'm very lucky that I'm not, I don't get nervous in open water, but I know so many swimmers, even swimmers who, you know, swim in college who don't want to be in open water yeah. because there's the unknown. You don't know what's beneath you. The water is not that clear. I mean, this race, the specific race I'm talking about, you swim in the Hudson, you literally <laughs> jump into the Hudson river at 110th on the West side of New York. So it's disgusting and it's dirty. <laughs> So it's horrible, but continue. it is horrible. And then again, you mentioned all sorts of people. So imagine you're in a group of 20 people and then suddenly someone says go and you're all swimming in the exact same direction all at once. It is, it is a very aggressive thing. Uh, new triathletes will often practice sw swim starts because talk about your heart rate goes from you know, hundred to 180 immediately, not even because of the physical exertion, but the stress of it. So it is really stressful. Um, I, I'm forever grateful that I was a water polo player because that's where I learned to be really, I can be aggressive in the water. I'm not worried about people knocking into me. I'm used to it. But for a blind athlete, they can't see anything coming. Kim in that one specific race, this first woman I raced with, she was really, really calm and jumped in and had no issues. But I've had, I've raced with many women for with really good reason where your panic response sets in. Yeah. And again, Cited or not, I have seen this happen many, many times because it is really stressful and it's full sensory deprivation. You can't see, and then suddenly your head's in the water and you can't hear. Yeah. I mean, it, it's terrifying. Getting past the initial um, you know, jostling part is, is paramount, but sometimes it can feel like even doing that is just impossible. How do you, how do you communicate with your athletes when you're swimming? So if things are going well, there's really no talking generally the tether and my body do the communicating for me. So if they feel the tether pulling, that means that um, they, they're too far out. So I try to hold that straight line and I'm sighting on the buoys or, or whatever, you know, however the race is set up. And if they go too far out, they'll correct. And if they're smacking me in the head, they know they're probably swimming too close or they're, they're veering too far towards me. So that's, it's really, it's body stuff. It's not, um, we're not talking much. You mentioned that your first athlete really had no issues with this, but you also mentioned that some have mm -hmm. when someone's in the water and they're struggling and any of us who've been in a pool or a lake or an ocean, we've all had that moment where it's like, am I too deep? Am I okay? Is the tide pulling me out? Do I know which way I'm going? All, all this stuff. And that's for those of us able to see where the shore is. Yeah. So share a moment where one of your athletes was concerned or confused or just stressed. The most important thing I've learned throughout over 15 years of guiding now, guided, you know, dozens of women and, and men, it really depends on the person. So more than anything, it's that effective communication, right? So one of my favorite people in the world, she's one of the toughest people I know. Uh, she's done more Ironmans than any other uh, blind person, man or woman. She would panic to the point where she was dead stopped in the water. Yeah. And I, I remember the first time it happened to us, I was like, what do I say to her? And she's one of those really, really tough people. And her, her favorite saying is 
HTFU. If anyone doesn't know, harden the blank up. And that's so that that's the type of person she is. She's really hard charging. She's very competitive. And so I was like, do I say to her, hey, it's okay. Like you can do this or hey, no worries. We'll stop. I'll go get, um, I'll go call for help and we'll get pulled from the water. That would have destroyed her. So I opted to use more of a tough love approach with her. Yes. And I said, all right, like give me 10 strokes. So she, she gave me 10 strokes and then stopped. And I mean, she was like, I can't do this. I can't breathe. But again, I knew she could breathe. I knew panic was a potential response for her. So we, we broke it up and I asked her for 10 more. And then we added on and did 15 and then 20 and literally broke up the whole swim that way. And again, mm. the rest of the race was totally fine. It really depends on the person because someone else might, if you acted in a more sort of direct, tougher way, they might shut down further. So you, it just depends who you're with. And I, I'm just going to remind our listeners who have never been in a pool, never run a race, never gotten on a bike that yes, we are indeed talking about uh, that component of movement, but hear this story from the perspective of a human being meeting another where they are, because that's, that's truly what we're celebrating during this podcast, the ability yeah. to meet another person, to tether yourself to her or him. Yeah. And to love them as they are, where they are, and then to move forward together. So you, you do this with that swimmer, 10 strokes, 15, 20, ultimately you yep. finish the swim part. Tragically, the race isn't over. In a triathlon, what happens after the, the swimming is complete? You get out of the water, you strip off your wetsuit if you're wearing one, you take off your cap and goggles, you put on your socks and your bike shoes and your bike helmet, and you go off and you ride. In that race, it was, I think, a half Ironman, so we had to do a 56-mile bike ride. And that, that was what happened next. Um, and an Ironman it's 112. So it's, it's a really, really long, long day on the bike after that. And the bike, just to make sure folks recognize this is a, a tan, like a tan. That's right. Oh, we haven't even gotten to that part. Yeah. So, uh, so I talked about tethering on the swim for blind athletes. You have a bungee quarter on your waist or your thigh on the bike. I do have people that'll come up to me and say, Oh, do you ride bikes side by side? I'm like, no. And they'll ask me who sits in, in the front of the tandem bike. And I'm like, why don't you think about that for a second? <laughs> so no, it's, it is a tandem and the sighted person is in the front. Now people ask me, do, can you, are you pedaling? Absolutely. Both people pedal. The, this is the part of the race where as a guide, I can help the most. But yeah. I want to, there's a caveat here. It, it's not like I'm pulling the athlete along with me. I'm five, five. I weigh like 130 pounds. I can't pull someone's legs around. So we are going at whatever sort of effort level they can sustain because I can't make them go faster than they can. If we're both in really good shape, it can go really well. On a bike, are you communicating? Are you encouraging? Yes, we are definitely talking. Now people ask me, yeah, are you coaching? Are you encouraging? And what I will say is that's not my role. If I'm racing with somebody and they ask me to, and they want me to be coaching them or reminding them of things, sure. But it's a partnership more than anything. Um, you know, the women I race with have trained for the race. They are capable, competent athletes. I'm not there to coach them, but when you're on a bike that long, yeah. you talk about everything. So you talked about <laughs> meeting someone where they are. Think about the conversations you can have over that that amount of time. Uh, I've gotten some of my closest friends through guiding because there's no better way to get to know somebody incredibly well than to be stuck with them literally for, you know, in a full Ironman, 14 to 16 hours. 
and you're, you're talking the whole time because in Ironman, you can't go max effort level for that long. You're going at a very reasonable pace. So you should be able to talk. Um, so the conversations are, are awesome, but, but yes, if someone wants me to hold them accountable, if they want me to be calling splits or, you know, asking for different things from them, I certainly will play that role, but I don't go into races thinking I'm here to coach this person, you know? Carolyn, we all have our off days. You're primarily there to fade, meaning like this is the athlete's race, not yours. And so you want to do just enough to let them shine. But I'm assuming there are days where you just don't have it. You don't have the energy. You just don't have it within you. And on those days, what, what do you do? What, what do you share with your athlete? And what's the internal dialogue that you give yourself? That's one of the most terrifying situations as a guide. And that that is why guiding is one of the scariest things that I do because my biggest fear is letting people down sure. a thousand percent. And in any area of my life, I never want to let the people around me down, but you do have to go into these races knowing that the person that you're racing with, and that's so from the blind athletes perspective, the person you're racing with is a person and they are fallible. I'll speak to one specific race. I was in Kona and did the Ironman world championships with an amazing woman uh, she's, she's visually impaired. She's got a PhD in biochemistry. She's, she, at that time was a single parent, really cool woman. I put out too much effort on the bike and it was really, really hot in Kona, but thankfully she had told me before we started and we'd known each other for about a week at this point, but she said, Hey, if you ever need me to be quiet or to like give you space to sort of work from within yourself, or if, if I'm just being too much, tell me. So we get off this bike ride where you know, she had struggled a bit. So I put out too much effort and I, we started the run and I was like, oh my God, I don't know if we can do this. And again, we had flown to Hawaii for this race. It is the biggest race you can ever do as an Ironman. And I'm terrified. And it is, you know, probably 85 plus degrees, humid, sunny. And we start running and she suddenly was feeling better. So now have you ever been in a physical, like a, if you're in like a, a state of physical stress and you're feeling awful, but the person with you is doing great. It almost makes you feel 10 times worse okay. <laughs> just because you're with somebody who's so happy and you're dying. And so that's kind of what happened to us. Um, and so I did, I, because she told me, Hey, you can tell me to be quiet. And I was like, Hey, Helen, I need you to just give me some silence for a couple of miles. And I focused on my run cadence and just really focusing on getting my energy back. And after a couple of miles, it really did work. And I, on that occasion, I didn't have to slow her down. And I was so grateful for that. Um, but, but yeah, bad races do happen as a guide. And that's why this is really a partnership because bad races happen as, as a blind athlete, they happen for guides. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. But I will say rule of thumb, if you're going to guide, ideally you want to be faster than your athlete is when they're having their absolute best day and you're having your worst day mm. that provides enough of a buffer where even if they're doing great and you're suffering, you should be able to get them to their goals. But of course that doesn't always, it doesn't always pan out because you could, you could completely shut down and you know, there's nothing you can do at that point. <laughs> well, I hear some of our more loyal listeners with the last name O'Leary right now saying, man, life is filled with enough suffering. Why would you choose this? So let me ask it on behalf of those who might want to ask it of you. Like life is hard and there's a lot of struggle. And then you just use in your answer right there, the word suffering two different times when you suffer, when I find myself suffering. So why put yourself in a position where you, where you suffer? What's funny is I didn't even notice I used that word. That's telling. 
I think there's beauty in suffering. I'm one of those people that believes that when you push yourself to the extreme physically, it allows you to see what you're capable of. And then when you're in tough situations, emotionally, professionally, whatever they might be, I do think it helps you believe in yourself more. It makes you more resilient. Uh, and I think ultimately more successful, but again, pushing yourself suffering that can mean so many different things to different people. So I'm not suggesting everyone should do an Ironman. There are lots of different ways to push yourself, but I do think pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And again, that, that could be something not even physical. If you hate public speaking and you sign up for Toastmasters, something like that, those are that suffering for somebody who hates being in, in front of people. Um, those things, I think help you grow. Is there a favorite experience, whether it's an athlete, a swim, a ride, a run, a race that just was even more meaningful and moving than the others? I'm going to share the weirdest story just because it told, it's what came to mind. This is the last Ironman I guided um, a year, like a year and a half ago. It wasn't long ago, but it was the most recent one. And I was racing with a woman named Randy, who's one of my closest friends. And this swim, neither of us wanted to do. And the reason for that is it was in Maryland and the body of water was packed with jellyfish, the kind that just sting and you itch and it's awful. I'm talking, you look in the water and it's murky, not because of water. I mean, from like, you know, dirt or anything, it's jellyfish everywhere. I've never been nervous before a swim. I was terrified. And Randy had a really tough year that year. Uh, this was my first Ironman since becoming a mom. I had just changed jobs. There were so many things going on and neither of us wanted to do the swim. In the middle of the swim, she gets a horrible muscle cramp, which by the way, can be totally day ending. Like if, if you can't kick your legs, you're going to sink. <laughs> so we had all of these obstacles in this swim. To this day, that thought brings a smile to my face. And it was probably the least pleasant swim I've ever done. But the fact that we got through it, we got through it together, made it that much more meaningful. And of course, you know, the, the bike was fantastic. The run was a total slog. It was really, really hot. It was really painful. But when we crossed that finish line, knowing the kind of year that Randy had had personally, um, that this was, you know, a big achievement for me as well, that, you know, it was my first Ironman during the pandemic post becoming a parent and just crossing that finish line with her, especially after the way it started, mm. it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. And that feeling is what keeps me coming back over and over and over again. No question. How does this change the way you feel about others who have some type of disability in their life? What, whatever that is. I, I think many folks who have never worked with a, a, an athlete who struggles with their sight may not even recognize that they're able to do these things. And once you recognize, well, they can do that, certainly, because I've done dozens with them, I would imagine it changes the way you view every ability and every disability and, and the way you perceive life itself. No one's ever asked me this, and I'm so glad that you asked me. When I see somebody with any disability, my first inclination is to go up to them and ask them what sport they play. Because I have, I know, I mean, I have great friends with any type of physical disability you can imagine. And the, this is all encompassed within the triathlon world, just for anyone who's not familiar, this is encompassed in the term para. So anyone who's a para athlete, Paralympics in, in triathlon is para triathlete. So that's anyone with a physical disability. And you would be, well, I'm not blown away because I've been around this so much, but most people who have not been exposed to the para community are blown away when they see what people can do. But one of my favorite things about telling my story, again, as a 
I, I come from a place of privilege. I am a non-disabled woman who has been around tons of athletes with various disabilities. And it's, it's amazing. Now I would say this, the blind population specifically is something, you know, I go out and I tell my story about guiding and I always make sure to emphasize how capable these women are because the blind population is the most underemployed group. And I really think that that's because people, they say to themselves, I don't know how they could possibly do this job that I'm doing if they can't see. And if I can't imagine how they could do it, how could they possibly do it? And that's because we're all so limited. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, of course, taken by your story, John, you've, I'm sure, experienced, you know, people judging you based on what they think you can and can't do. And you just cannot judge people. I was mm -hmm. navigated home from downtown Austin by a woman, one of my close friends, who has zero vision. She knew the streets so well. I'm piloting the tandem bike and she's telling me where to turn <laughs> to get me to her house. Okay. I can't even navigate. I have to have Google maps open at all times. Like you just have no idea how capable these people are. So never, ever judge someone based on how they look. Don't judge them by how they talk. Some people, they're slower to communicate. That does not mean that they are cognitively impaired. Mm. It's amazing how many people I know who are blind or in wheelchairs and people will talk to them like they're children just because of some physical disability. And we as a society have to change that. I mean, it's completely opened my eyes. It's funny, my daughter the other day was playing with these this dino toys and they had two like figures. And she said, well, this brother does this and this brother's blind. And so she's been incorporating people with disabilities into her playing because we are normalizing that for her. Some people have eyes that can see, some people have eyes that can't see, and some people don't have eyes. Mm. And that's what we teach her. And it's not better or worse, it just is. You were unable in your early 20s to get out of bed, to answer the bell, to be at work on time and get the projects done well in an orderly fashion because you were so beat down yeah. with some mental health challenges. How has running these races and guiding these athletes and and finishing well changed the way you internally are operating now? I just, I know I wouldn't have gotten through that period of my life without the the friends I made through guiding, not a chance. It gave me a purpose. And thankfully, after I did get out of that period, I have not experienced any type of depression since then, but I can very, I can relate very well to anyone who's gone through it because at the time it felt impossible. If I'd signed up for a race to race on my own, I probably would have canceled. But when I had someone relying on me, it got me to train. I, I'm not going to say the training was ideal. There were definitely races I went into undertrained, but I never, I never canceled on anyone that I was guiding. I never, there was never a race. I didn't show up and give it everything I had. Mm. And I am so grateful to everyone that I raced with, especially during that period, because it truly got me through. So I'll have people say to me, oh, it's so selfless. You gave up a career of, of racing to, to, to guide people. And I'm like, you are describing this yeah. incorrectly. <laughs> like I gave up nothing. I got so much more out of guiding. It's something I hope I do for the rest of my life. I got so much more out of it, I think, even than the women I've raced with. There's nothing more meaningful, truly. So I'm going to let you cross the finish line with us, not so much regarding sports and triathlons, but life itself. 46% of us are currently identifying as being isolated. We report that we're doing life all by ourselves. And there are profoundly negative consequences when that's the way we feel. What would you say to our listeners right now who feels if they're they're by themselves and they're running this race of life um, in a lane all by themselves? 
what, what's the encouragement to them? Well, first of all, I mean, I know what it feels like to be alone, even if you're surrounded by people. And sometimes that can be even more isolating. So like, I want to emphasize with the people who are around people all the time and still feel lonely. Yeah. But for the people who are truly isolated, it's, it is a terrible feeling. And I don't ever want to say, oh, there's a quick fix, but I can just share what I've done, which is find a way to give back, whether that's something virtually, if that's all you can do, or if there's any type of charity nonprofit locally where you can just show up. Sometimes you, you could show up once a month. It can be something really, really minimal. But if you take that first step to go do something for someone else, I really do think there's so much power in that. Uh, you know, even if I'm having a down day, and, but someone's like, hey, can you get on the phone and talk to me about, you know, my career? Can you help me navigate this next step? You know, those conversations, even if I'm having a really bad day, they always leave, leave me with energy. They make me feel like I've done something worthwhile. And I think that there's something really powerful in, in, in being of service to others that ultimately really helps you. Well, we could leave it there, but... I can't because you mentioned in the very beginning about your mother who has Parkinson's disease and dementia. You talk about guiding someone well to the finish line of their life. Talk about your mom today. Oh, that's a hard one. Sorry, this is where I probably will cry. Um, my mom was, is one of the greatest people in the world. Um, she gave up everything for us. I mean, like talk about being isolated she moved to a new city her marriage fell apart and she was raising three kids that were not easy kids and then she went back and got her fourth graduate degree to practice as a psychotherapist and dedicated her career to helping others and she's she's amazing but when she was diagnosed with parkinson's eight years ago we thought that it was going to be a physical ailment. I remember taking her to a paratriathlon camp and she was just helping with merchandise. And she's, you know, she qualified as a para-athlete because of her mobility disorders. But what the unfortunate thing is that we found out that her disease progression was going to be more um, cognitive and mental. And I, we were not prepared for that. So we built a house um, for her to live with us. And she lived with us for three and a half years, but it got to the point where we couldn't leave her alone. So there were a couple years where like my family, we couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere for our weekend, you know? Um, because also she had, she was limited in what she could do and, and she had major anxiety and things like that. So we couldn't even take her with us to certain places. So we made the difficult decision just over a year ago to move her to assisted living. Um, and I don't know what, what the road is from here, but cognitive decline is really scary and there's no clear path. My mom is my hero. I'm not going to tell you I'm always perfect with her. I'm not. I get angry with her. I get frustrated. Um, I definitely haven't grieved her yet, which is probably my next project. But I'm also grateful because now I can relate to people who are in that position. So I'm part of what's called the sandwich generation where I care for a young child and, and an older parent. And so even though she's not living with us, you know, I'm still coordinating all of her care. She's still coming over all the time. Um, and it still is at the very least a part-time job um, to care for her. And then on top of that, you know, I travel almost every week for my job. So it is a lot. Um, but again, I'll, I'll bring it back to, to guiding because that's still now when things are really tough with my mom. And, you know, yesterday I went for a run and Sunday I did a two and a half hour run with my friend, Anthony, who's blind. 
And we talk about my mom all the time. And that's an, a safe space for me to share what I'm going through. And he's glad I'm there because he needs me to run with him. But I'm glad he's there because I needed a friend to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so grateful for those those runs and those workouts because, I mean, you know, having those close relationships are what what makes life worthwhile. You know, our, our worth isn't measured by how much money we make. It's the quality of the relationships that we have. Mm. I don't guide because I'm just because I'm helping people. I guide because I make the most incredible friends and it's the best way for us to spend time together. We began the conversation in the Live Inspired coffee shop talking about your mom and dad and what you observed in them growing up and the, the hustle and the race and their drive professionally and personally in all things, when you look at this little four-year-old that you are now loving and raising and guiding <laughs> forward, when I have her on the podcast in 20 years and I ask her, what did you, what did you see in your mom? What do you, what do you hope she says? I hope she sees somebody who loves her unconditionally. You know, it's so easy, you know, people, oh, do you hope she runs? Do you hope she does this? Do you hope she does that? I mean, sure. I, it'd be cool if she did triathlons. I'd be cool if she guided, but more than anything, I want her to know that I'll love her no matter what. And, um, and that's what I got from my mom. It, there was never, her love was never, you know, dependent upon something else. She did not care what I did. I always say to Jesse, my daughter, like, I love you when you're angry. I love you when you're throwing a tantrum. I love you when you're happy. Like I like her to know, and I want to say it explicitly for her because I don't ever want her to think of behavior as good or bad. You know, we all have emotions Emotions are scary as anything, but you're going to feel that way. And the people who really love you will love you no matter what you're feeling and how it's coming out. And especially young kids, they have zero control over that. So even when she's driving me up the wall, especially when she's driving me up the wall, I try to make sure that I tell her how much I love her because I want her to know that no matter what she does and who she is, I will love her. Carolyn, get ready to get off the bike, get on your running shoes. We're going to finish the last 26.2 miles together. We call this a Live Inspired 7. Okay. So uh, take a big swig, <laughs> Gatorade, or whatever you normally drink on the on the race through life. And let me even begin by just thanking you for the time and your honesty around your mom and your daughter and these incredible athletes that you guide for. It has been a blast And we're not quite to the finish line. So question number one of the Live Inspired 7 is what's been the most impactful or the most inspirational book you've ever read? This is an unfair answer, but I I have to say this just because my sister just wrote a novel that's being published by Random House in a month. And I'm inspired by the fact that she wrote a novel that is being published by a major (laughs) publishing company. So I have to say that just because it's my sister and she's my best friend. Um, But that book is The Glow by Jessie Gaynor. Um, I just, I'm in awe of her to to write. And now that I've seen what goes into it, it's such a challenging process. Um, And so I'm I'm just, I'm the most proud sister ever. Uh, So again, that's why I have to answer that way. Well, Jesse's PR team is yeah. thrilled right now at the Random House because the the PR party is kicked off in earnest. Right. What yeah. what is the glow about? Have you have you uh, stepped into it yet? Oh yeah, no, I I got a chance to read it. It's literary fiction. It's just it's a very funny book. Um, it is almost it's commentary on the current you know healthcare system and wellness uh, industry. So it's it is a very funny book about a woman who runs a uh, who's in PR and is. It's funny, given what we've talked about today, she's terrible at her job and ends up falling into 
um, you know, working for this woman who runs a wellness retreat. And it, it's just really entertaining. I'm not the fastest reader. I read it in a night. So it's one of those, if you need a book over the summer to, to get through, like, you know, while you're on vacation, pick it up. I think, you know, we'll all see it in airports soon. I'm, I'm really excited. So again, it's The Glow by Jesse Gaynor. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Tell me what one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up near Northwestern in Chicago that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today. When I was younger, I really thought I was I was smart. And I I still think I'm smart, but when I was younger before, you know, you grades were an issue and you were always comparing yourself to other people, I think I had a better sense for how intelligent I was. And as you get older, it just it's one of those things that you're always looking at the, the other guy around you, but I want to say to anyone who's listening, there are many different types of intelligence. You don't have to be the best test taker. You don't have to have the best grades. And I've seen that, you know, peers I went to high school with people who weren't top of the class and are super successful now. So I do know that I'm intelligent, but when I was younger, there were, there was no noise around it. I just, you know, I thought I was smart and I think that was helpful. <gasps> well, I think you're smart, dude. So uh, <laughs> teacher O'Leary says, come to the front of the class. Here's the A and I'll go take a seat. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item that really matters to you, what's the one thing you come racing back outside with? I thought initially I would, you know, photo albums, but I think that because there are too many of them, like that would be too difficult. So I would probably say there's an Iron Man necklace my mom got me. Um, it's white gold and it has the Iron Man logo. And she gave it to me when I was 21 and I had done my first Iron Man. And I, I think I wore it straight for 10 years and it's my, my good luck necklace. Um, and again, my mom gave it to me. So that's, um, yeah. I, would, I would go get that. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? I knew this one was coming. And it would be uh, my mom before she started to, you know, have cognitive decline. Mm. What's funny is I actually thought about that. I have been thinking that question for weeks, almost like I knew I was coming to do this. I hadn't even seen this question, but I was, was thinking, hands down, that's what I want to do. You spent a lot of time on the bike of life with your mom and uh, you had a lot of conversations. She loved you well and you loved her well back. Anything left unsaid, anything that you wish you'd been more explicit about or a question you would have asked her? I don't think so, which is a good feeling. I think she she knows how much I love her. And I think that's what I would leave listeners with is, you know, make sure the people that you care about, make sure that they know that you care about them. Um, because you never want to be left with that feeling of regret. Like there are always, there's always going to be regret. Like, oh, I wish I'd spent more time with someone, but more than anything, it's the way you make people feel, um, that matters. What's the best advice your mother, your father, some coach, first boss, second boss, your child, or anybody yeah. else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received, Carolyn, is. I think this one probably came from my dad, but. Hard work matters more than talent. And I truly believe that work ethic matters. And I'm, you know, not the destroy yourself, have no life outside of work, but, you know, put dedicated effort into things. And that matters more than anything. Hard work matters more than talent. What would you tell your 20 year old self? It's all going to be fine. It's going to work out. 
Carolyn Gaynor, the finish line is in sight. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She made people feel valued. And I'm not saying I do that, but I, I hope I do. Um, and I, I want that, that every single person has value. Every single person is the most important person to someone um, and to know that you have value. And I think that goes back to kind of things we've been talking about. People are struggling, um, but you matter to so many people and, and you have value as a person and it has nothing to do with your accomplishments. Before we recorded live today, Carolyn asked me what I wanted our listeners to get out of this episode. And I shared with her the story that one of my friends recently lost his life to suicide. So I, I told Carolyn, I wanted people to be reminded that they mattered. And I think it's beautiful today that we wrap up this conversation with you now, my friend, reminding all of us that our lives matter, that the race is worthy, and that the best is yet to come. So Carolyn Gaynor, thank you for running the good race. Thank you for guiding the rest of us forward. And thank you for uh, reminding us that we matter. We do. And so do you. Thank you. This has been such a joy. My friends, that is my friend, Carolyn Gaynor. This is our day. What a gift it is. Finish strong and live inspired. See you next week. Well, my friends, I said at the top of the episode that this one is going to be a reminder that in life, sometimes you are the guide to others, and sometimes it is someone else taking you by the hand, guiding you forward. And yet what we know to be true, you can't go through this life all by yourself. I was so moved by Carolyn's drive to serve others and how her primary role as a guide is to blend into the background while helping other people, other leaders, other athletes shine. It reminded me of a conversation we had a couple years ago with a retired president of a little coffee shop down the street named Starbucks. The conversation was with my friend Howard Bihar. He ended by giving away his cell phone. If for no other reason, listen to it for that. That conversation took place for episode number 378. So it's been a minute. And during it, Howard shared the lessons he learned that nurtured and inspired him to lift up those around him to recognize the brilliance of their work, of their words, of their deeds, of their lives. Check it out to learn how Howard and his team grew Starbucks from a little coffee shop footprint of 28 stores in the Pacific Northwest to more than 15,000 around the world. That's an awesome episode, and he's a great guy. You're going to love it. It's episode 378. And if you can't find it there, well, let me help you out. Go over right now to johnallearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, and we will have a link in today's show notes for you. My friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to our Live Inspired podcast community. I want to thank you for believing like I do, that the foundation is firm, the headwind we face, and the race of life is real. And yet when we face it together, it is true that the best is yet to come. So for this time... And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture, 
Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Company. 